Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. For all the guys out there, don't forget to head over to Facebook and join the fast-growing Man Talks community. We have some great conversations around relationships, fitness, finance, fatherhood, you name it, we dive into some great conversations. Don't forget to head over to mantalks.com and check out the blog posts, other podcasts, and live videos from our events. Really excited about my conversation today. Joining me is Manu Swish Goswami. I just love that name, Swish Goswami. Uh, so he's a really interesting guest. He's definitely the youngest guest that I've ever had. Manu is uh, 20 years old and uh, has some incredible accolades. He's a serial tech entrepreneur, uh, COO, and co-founder of Dunk, a LinkedIn youth editor, TEDx speaker, Fortune 500 consultant. Um, he's spoken at organizations like Google, American Express. He's a venture capitalist at J.B. Fitzgerald Venture Capital, founded by Brooklyn Nets PF uh, Trevor Booker. And most notably, he's a UN youth ambassador. So Swish has gotten up to some seriously, seriously cool things in the past. And today we are going to dive into the future of entrepreneurship. We talk about a few things from understanding social entrepreneurship and its value and its pull to younger generations. Uh, we talk uh, all about how to build a personal brand because Swish has actually done a really incredible job of building up one of the top LinkedIn influencers profiles uh, on LinkedIn, which is absolutely incredible. And we jam on a few things from starting your own venture to venture capital to understanding how to pitch uh, and get investment. So today is all about entrepreneurship and he's got an incredible, incredible story. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Swish Goswami. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man, we've, uh, you know, we've been sort of following each other for quite a while now and, you know, going back and forth about having you on the podcast and I'm really excited. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, you're my youngest guest so far. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so let's just dive in because I think we got a lot to, to talk about, a lot to unpack, but I'm going to start off with the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Yeah. So firstly, again, thank you for having me on. Um, the defining moment, I guess, would for me would be in grade seven. So not too long ago, but about six, seven years ago, when I was basically going and playing basketball, coming back from lunch, and I saw a sign-up sheet for a club for debate. And I had no idea what debate was. I knew that my brother did it, and I knew my brother was really good at it. But I, the reason why I think that's a defining moment in my life and just signing up on that very day and then going to the meeting on the next Tuesday is because debate has basically fueled every single part of my life. It has given me the confidence to speak out, the confidence to network with people, the confidence to even have the audacity of building a business that I can call my own, that I can live off. That's all come from debate. So I view that moment as probably the pivotal moment in my life where I signed up for debate and truly actually like, I don't want to say this in a cliche way, but like I truly did, like I found my voice through that. Nice. That's cool, man. So what were some of the lessons that you sort of pulled out of that space? Because I think debating is like, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those arts that if you master, I think that skill set serves you for a really long time. Yeah, 100%. No, there are two main things. One is, 
I think easily the ability to dive deeper into issues, especially in a time where I feel like now political debates tend to be very surface level. There's no real nuance in them. It's really, really good to be able to be in debate because you'll analyze perspectives and topics from multiple perspectives. So taking a look at what the pro side is and what the con side is. And then you'll actually go deeper into examining examples, past precedent, things that have been done in the future. Like these types of things are really, really important that I think if you're being able to like go through a process of truly going deeper into a topic, you're more likely to do it for other areas. And then the second thing is just the incredible people you meet, you know, like it was the first time where I was able to come in a room with people who were literally nerds. And it's a stereotype I know with debate, but there are a lot of people that are bookies, gamers, people that genuinely like want to be able to progress in life so, so quickly. And to be around that atmosphere of people who want to get ahead really, really quickly in life, that's incredible. Mm, nice, man. Nice. Well, um, I mean, you have a pretty, you have a pretty interesting story. Um, I love that you're Canadian first and foremost, yeah. but you have a pretty interesting story and there's, there's some key things that I would love to touch on here because you've really leveraged um, some social platforms, social media platforms in, in order to grow your career, grow your following and, and, you know, do some of the things that you've done, which, which are really, really impressive, not just for somebody your age, but just in just period, they're impressive. And one of the things that, that I wanted to touch on first and foremost was you've really leveraged LinkedIn to actually grow your platform and, and sort of become more known, which, which I've found as, as really interesting because LinkedIn for me has always kind of been like, ah, it's a resume and you put your resume on there yep. and that's it. And, and I've seen you over the past couple of years actually just like blow up because of LinkedIn. So how have you done that? And why, why LinkedIn? Why did you choose LinkedIn out of all the platforms? Yeah. I mean, I chose LinkedIn for the very reason that a majority of people view it as a substitute for a resume or a place to find a job. You know, I, I, I went into LinkedIn because while all my friends were on Instagram and Snapchat, I saw that as way too crowded for me to do a lot of damage in. And I went to a platform that a lot of people didn't see you could curate content on or that you could even like create anything, you know, and build a following on. People didn't even know you could have followers on LinkedIn, I feel. <laughs> so I think, I think the big thing for me when it came to LinkedIn was just remembering that this is what I want to talk about. And all of the topics that I really wanted to talk about were very professional based. So that was one signal why LinkedIn would be great. And the second thing was more to come off as a person that was able to talk about not only my successes in my professional life, but my failures. And I feel like when you talk about your failures or your struggles on Instagram or Twitter, you're more likely to actually not get the right perception towards that piece of content than on LinkedIn, where people actually embrace that type of content. And they're willing to be like, hey, that was really inspiring. Here's a similar story that happened in my life. And they're more likely to resonate with what you're saying. So I just found the community on LinkedIn to immediately, I'm not even talking about like within three months, I'm talking about immediately. They were just so, so, so passionate about what I was talking about that it became addictive for me to continue just putting out my story and my thoughts on that platform. Very cool. Very cool. And then one of the things that, you know, I think is really impressive is you gave a, a TEDx talk about social entrepreneurship. And I believe it's called the, the golden era of social entrepreneurship. And I, I'm curious as to how that came about and why social entrepreneurship? You know, it's like a, it's a big topic right now. It's in a lot of the forefronts of people's minds. And so um, I, I would love to hear why you chose that topic and maybe like what you talked about. And then I'd love to dive in, like, how do you actually define social entrepreneurship? And, and we'll kind of go down the rabbit hole there a little bit. Cool. I'm excited. No, yeah. Like, I mean, 
only about a year and a half ago, I pivoted into tech entrepreneurship. But throughout before, and even now, if you ask me, like, Swish, what type of entrepreneur are you? I would say a social entrepreneur because for me, like going and starting on my entrepreneurial career, it was done at a very young age. I built a hovercraft business with my dad. But like beyond anything else, I think the key thing for me was when I was moving into high school, I was figuring out ways that I could impact my community, could make some sort of change, whatever that looks like. You know, it's a cliche thing that millennials try to say. But for me, I saw social entrepreneurship as an incredible vehicle to do that. And I started two social ventures in high school. One was called the World Youth Fund, which was the world's first youth social capital fund, currently partnered with the World Bank. And the next foundry, which was an entirely online incubator for rural-based entrepreneurs. Just doing that, literally, like I did it out of the impetus of trying to get into a good university and I wanted to pad my resume. But the reason I kept going with those initiatives was quite honestly because I loved what I was doing and I loved the impact that I was making. So that's why I spoke so passionately about social entrepreneurship in that TEDx talk is because I truly believe that if you want to learn about business, if you want to do it in the safest way possible to start off with, build a social venture. You're not taking money from anyone. You don't have to reach a really strict bottom line and you can make the impact on consumers and average people that you want to be able to do. And that's mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to dive into all that, but um, I heard hovercraft company and I'm really curious. About <laughs> I was like, I almost wanted to like interrupt you there and be like, hold, hold on, hold the phone. Like what? Yeah. Hovercraft. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so what, tell me about that. Cause that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it was my first project I worked on when I was eight years old. Um, my dad is an engineer by trades. He's now a director of operations for an oil and gas company. So he sold his soul, I guess, to the corporate world. But at the same time, <laughs> I mean, when, when he came home one day, I think one of the things parents like to do is to see if their parent, if their children like what they're doing and would be willing to go down that same path. And so for me, I think my dad was kind of like, you know, not insistent, but he wanted me to try out some form of engineering when I was like eight years old, you know. But he was like, I'm not going to be able to get this kid to learn about pipelines and where you know the oil and gas industry is situated and where it's going. So might as well do something he likes. So for me, like I loved consumer electronics growing up, like, you know, the remote controlled cars, the hovercraft, like all of these things were great. Um, and so I bought something called a Havoc Heli, which was basically a styrofoam helicopter. It was rechargeable and remote controlled. And my dad had a great idea, which was, why don't we take the base of that Havakeli, the helicopter, off? It was an indoor helicopter, really small. Why don't we take the base off and then use a rotor and the motor and just build a new base and create a hovercraft? And we can take a plastic bag and optimize the lift rate. And we did that. And within a month, I had like literally one entirely done hovercraft that I sold for $200. And I was thinking to myself, that's interesting. Now I can put that money towards buying the new Nintendo DS. But let's think, what more can I do now with this idea? And I started building several of them, but I never actually sold anyone after the first one. I, I never sold any hovercraft after that first hovercraft. And so I think it was weirdly enough my first lesson into entrepreneurship, which is just because you sold one doesn't mean that it's going to be like a proof of concept for being able to sell your future models. Nice, nice. Yeah, I like that. I like that because it's, you know, oftentimes I think that a lot of entrepreneurs have a passion for something and i think that they have yeah. like the next big idea 
you know, the, instead of instead of taking the time to actually figure out whether or not it's a viable product, a viable service, and whether or not there's a market out there for them, um, they just sort of like dive in and take on investing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden they find themselves down the rabbit hole, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with a product that nobody wants to buy. And all of a sudden they're yeah. shit out of luck. So it's it's great to hear that you, you took a very different approach to that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think one of the things too is that a lot of times people just assume that the market wants their idea because they're so infatuated by their idea. They, they love it so much that they're like, clearly there's a target audience out there and they just invent one in their head. And I've been in pitches, right? Right now I'm working part-time at a venture capital firm. I sit in these pitches and I look at people my age pitching and I'm like, who's your target market? In my head, I'm trying to ask them that. I'm literally trying to telepathically open my eyes and like tell them that there's a glaring issue in their business model. But a lot of them just assume off the bat that there's an audience because it's social media related or it's quote unquote uh, B2B business. And I'm like, who the fuck is your target audience? Like, you know, you have to explicitly tell me that, especially in the day and age we live in, where there's so many businesses competing for people's attention and people's money. Mm. So would you say that that's one of, you know, now we're kind of getting into entrepreneurship, which which I love. So would you say that that's one of the biggest challenges or hurdles that a lot of entrepreneurs face these days is actually defining who their target market is? And then after they've defined it, actually communicating that out into the world? Yeah. And I think it's also understanding that that target market will change as your product matures. But just in the same way that people do financial projections, I really, really wish that people would also do target market projections, which is as your audience starts to grow older, how do you continue to retain them and capture their attention and be able to sustain them as consumers going forward? Or alternatively, how are you able to get your product to mature to the point where you're able to actually go and target another threshold in terms of maybe going a bit older and targeting the 25 to 30 year olds as opposed to the 10 to 15 year olds. Yeah, I like that because, you know, I think statistically most people don't, most people will buy or convert. So let's just say that they're, you know, on your email list or they, they see your product, they'll, they'll buy or convert after nine. So I think it's like nine to 15 touch points of your product. Yep. And mm-hmm. so you really have to have a very clear understanding of who those people are, what they're actually looking for, so that each and every single time that they're seeing your product or service, they, they're they actually getting a clear understanding of like, oh, this is for me. Oh, this is for me. And that that like that reaffirming of, oh, this is for me, uh, is really is really one of the core pieces. And so if people haven't identified their target demographic, then that's a huge issue. So how how do you think, you know, since you've seen a lot of these pitches, how do you think that people can go about actually defining um, and, and, and honing in on who their target demo is? Like, what are some of the components that actually go into that? Uh, the number one thing is a lot of people need to realize that when you come up with a product or a service, the best thing that you can do before you ask for money and before you pitch to a VC or an institutional investor is go and actually test out the idea. You know, in the world we live in, if you want to build an app, you can prototype it on Envision.com. If you want to build a service, you can go into your condominium or into your community or into your dorm room and go and literally get sampled data from other people around you, asking them even the most simple question off, would you use this service? You know, that's the most basic version of testing out that idea. And maybe just by talking to people, just by going into various communities, you know, for me, when I was going through and building out the next boundary, an entirely online incubator. I went to various communities and I didn't just go to the schools. I went into 
elder homes. I went into various places within each community that I knew would be able to get me access to a brand new demo. And based on that, I started to view whether or not, you know, their response rates were more positive in a particular demo in a particular area. And even in a particular place that I knew had a different socioeconomic level, right? It's just thinking at a deeper level, I feel. But more importantly, of course, you're getting small sample data. So you can't make far-fetched assumptions. But at the same time, you know, some data is a lot better than no data. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And and in terms of, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that, you know, we kind of touched on on LinkedIn and, and you building a platform. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting for me is you've managed to overcome this sort of age thing and actually build a personal profile around entrepreneurship for somebody that is so young. So when you're sitting in these, you know, boardrooms, you're sitting in these meetings with these guys that have been, you know, in the, in the VC industry, in the venture capital industry for however long, a decade or two, what, what are some of the objections that you come up against as a young entrepreneur in that space? Cause I think that your story and your journey is so relevant for people, no matter what their age is, because one of the things that, that I've seen is that a lot of guys and a lot of women are, are starting to look at entrepreneurship as an opportunity that they can step into from their career. So they might be in their 30s or 40s or their late 20s, and it's a transition that they're wanting to make, but they're really concerned that, you know, oh, I haven't been an entrepreneur. There's a whole bunch of things that I'm not going to know about. How do I position myself as this like credible, authoritative uh, force within my industry. And from the outside, it looks like you've done that exceptionally well. So what are some of the key components that, first off, what are some of the things that you've faced as sort of ob- objections? And then let's dive into uh, how you've actually built what you've built. Yeah. I mean, for me, there are two main objections I've always had, which is one, I remember when I was, you know, Con, I remember early on, like when I started speaking a lot, like after I transitioned from debating for seven years, literally debating for seven years, honing my public speaking skills, getting into public speaking full time, really um, on the side and, and, and speaking when I was 18 years old. And the, the MC would say, all right, here to talk to you about how you can generate more business leads on LinkedIn. It's swish. And I remember vividly seeing people leave the room. Not maybe because they didn't want to hear about how to get more business leads, but probably because they heard the words 18-year-old and were like, oh, it's just going to be another presentation by this young person who doesn't really know what they're talking about, probably just got a lot of press, and that's why they're here. You know, And, and I can understand and I can empathize with that because I think there are a lot of young kids doing that right now, and there are a lot of young kids full of BS. But at the same time, I think the big, big, big thing for me was being able to A, get credibility within my industry. And then the second big obstacle is once I get that credibility through the awards I garner, to the results that I have with the businesses I start, to the market exit that I had two months ago, all of these things, all of these things, I think, cumulatively lead to the second obstacle being solved, which is once I've had that credibility, how do I go and make the most of it? And how do I go meet the most people I can and really navigate my way around the market? And so for me, I moved to New York when I was 20 years old, literally alone. You know, and I went from being in Toronto where people knew who I was because of Startup Canada or because of Plan Canada's Top 20 Under 20 or because of LinkedIn, which is my main following in Toronto. And I went to New York where the first day I landed, I went to an event called Hustle NY, started by Gerard Adams and Sarah Dietschy. And I went there and only three people knew me. And it wasn't like I was expecting to be known. I wasn't expecting to, you know, oh, like I'm Swish or anything like that. But it was just, you know, you go from an entire environment where you're comfortable because everyone around knows your spiel everyone knows what you've done 
and you go into an entirely unknown room and you have the credibility because you're in the room. It was an invite only event, but you still have to navigate your way around and talk to people and get connections and referrals to the people that you really, really, really want to talk to within mm. one to two months. So that was a big obstacle as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because like there's nothing quite as humbling for your ego and how, how big of a deal you might yeah. think you are as going to New York <laughs> and, 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 and like going to it, you know, I, I went to this dinner and it was like, same thing it was invite only. And there was eight other guys there. Uh, and, and I didn't know who any of them were. And the one rule was don't talk about work. And throughout, throughout the conversation, yeah. I was like, oh man, a couple of these guys like look familiar. And, but I couldn't like put my, you know, I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was chatting with the one guy and it came up that he had been on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And I was like, oh, I think I know you, who you are. And so anyways, the, the guy ended up being this like huge finance mogul who is friends with Warren Buffett and, you know, had been on the Tim Ferriss podcast talking about finances and venture capital and, and raising money and all that other kind of stuff. And I was like, you just, you just know, and you know, here I am like, you know, man talks dude from, from Vancouver. So <laughs> it's really, it's really quite funny, but, um, how do you find you build credibility and authority? Because I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with, not just in their own career, but specifically around personal branding, which seems to be more and more and more popular. Like everywhere that I go, no matter no matter what kind of business you run, whether you are a consultant or you have a coffee shop or you know you you're a big public figure like Gary V or you you know you run a an agency, a, a PR agency, like it doesn't really matter what industry you're in now. It seems to be that you have to create some sort of a personal profile. So what are some of the keys that you found in terms yeah. of building a pro personal profile? Because you've done this really well. Yeah. So I think there's three things. One is figure out the platform that works well for you. And in thinking of that, you also have to think about what type of content you're really good at. So for me, I suck at taking photos. I mean, I bet I could get a bit better at it, but I'm not as good as writing. I think writing is kind of where I, I shine. So I knew that the platforms that I would probably deviate towards in terms of my professional brand would be things like LinkedIn and Facebook, unlikely to do it as much, you know, on Snapchat or Instagram. Um, though now, of course, I mean, for me, Instagram has been kind of big because it's been a great way for me to be able to continuously show the person, I guess, behind all those professional LinkedIn posts. And it's my personal account. So I'm able to post anything that I want that, you know, if I'm chilling with friends or doing whatever, I can show the behind the scenes of that. So that's one consideration is just what platform and content are you really good at? The second thing I think when it comes to your personal branding is, is collaborating with people. You know, it goes under set, I feel. The number one way to grow an Instagram following, like despite all the weird, like, quote unquote, secrets you can get from these people who've grown Instagram accounts, but then you check their account and they only have 300 followers or something. But like, whatever, like the biggest thing that you can take away from all these courses or whatever is literally collaboration, going out and meeting people who have a similar following to you, building content with them. And getting them to post it on their Instagram story or getting them to share it on their LinkedIn or getting them to feature it on their Snapchat and you do the same for them as well, right? If you continuously do that, you're going to grow together. That's one of the early things I did for LinkedIn too is there are a lot of things like engagement pods. And I didn't like that idea as much as creating a collaboration group wherein we don't go and we like each other's like statuses or anything like that. But what we do is we work with each other in that little small LinkedIn group that I have to write articles with one another. And I was around 12,000 followers at that time. A guy called Josh Fector, who if you're on LinkedIn, you've obviously seen this guy, was around 2,000. 
And Michaela Alexis was at 30,000. She's an incredible LinkedIn, uh, you know, incredible LinkedIn expert, I would say. We all grew along with four other people from our followings to now Michaela's at 70,000, I'm close to 50, and Josh is close to 35 or something. Like, it's not only, of course, because of collaboration, but it's a big factor because my audience started to see Josh, Josh's audience started to see me, and we started really being able to find a really good synergy with one another. And the third and probably final way when it comes to personal branding, and this, again, I think goes understood, is being a good human being. And the reason I say this is because, especially if you want to grow a following on LinkedIn, it's the small things that really, really, really count. If you're a person that goes and set up a connection with somebody, right, and you go and ping them immediately saying, hey, love to be connected, what can I help you with? Off the bat, you have just been awarded one fan that is going to remember exactly what you did forever. If you go and you connect one of your friends to somebody else who is asking for a connection to him or to her, that's something that is likely not going to be forgotten by that person. If you go and start a consulting call or get on people and let, tell them literally to ping you at a particular number for 15 minutes and you'll get in the call with them and help them out, that's something people won't forget, right? It's the small things that really count and it comes down to just being a good human being and caring about other people and what their needs are before yours. And that is something that is incredible for personal branding as well, because every time people now talk about you, they view you in a particular light that you can take, that is literally going to be your legacy. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And starting to find a way that you can, starting to find a way that you can have your own unique voice in that. Like, I think, you know, anytime that people reach out to me uh, and, you know, they're asking for support or help or insight, you know, just because it happens a lot, I'm always like, you know, because people are always like, oh, yeah, I can can I just buy you coffee and have an hour of your time? And it's like, well, yeah. an hour of my time is like, you know, <laughs> it's pretty it's yeah. a little hard to come by right now. Um, but I've sort of divert to, you know, send me a voice memo. Like, here's my phone number. Yep. Send me a voice memo or send me a voice memo through Facebook. And then that's like the easiest way for me to communicate. And I can answer questions and get back and, and be of service then. And so I think there's a lot of different mediums and platforms. And so I think that, you know, being able to find what works best for you, because I love talking. So my medium is always around video and podcasting and being able to engage people in this way. So finding your medium, uh, as you were saying, is, is a huge, huge component. And then in terms of, um, you know, finding other social influencers that are out there that you can collaborate with, how do you start to identify those people? Because I can imagine that once you start to get a little bit of credibility and you start to get a little bit of following, everybody's going to want to start to position like, hey, I would love to partner with you or collaborate with you. So how do you identify the the social influencers that you want to collaborate with versus the people who are, you know, maybe maybe not in that same realm who might just be trying to get something from you? Yeah, I think the real game is finding one to two, which is you just got to look behind the curtain, right? When these people go and message you, go and check out their content, see if their engagement is actually really good, see if their follower count is actually really good, see if they're actually even posting on the platform. I had people who were like, can I write an article with you and had never posted on LinkedIn? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, and so I think the big thing is look behind the curtain. And then once you try to, once you find one or two, right? Because Again, to be an influencer on a platform doesn't just mean that you post on it. And this is something I wish I could tell to the Neil Patels, the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world, which is the one advice I would have for them if I can even offer advice to them, which I don't think I'm in that position yet. But if I could is you guys have an incredible team that is on LinkedIn doing all the work for you. 
but are you truly also a consumer of that platform? And I would probably say no, because I think it's so important to see where that platform is headed and who the new rock stars are. And the only way to find that out is by literally going in and being a consumer as well as a person who posts and going and checking out your feed every day and seeing, hey, this post went viral. I saw Josh like five times last week as well. Maybe I should go hit him up and say, congrats, what are you up to? Learn more about him while he's young and while he's growing his following, right? Those are the types of things I did just by being a consumer of LinkedIn. I started to deviate my attention away from Facebook and only check LinkedIn in the morning when I was doing my social media updates. So that's a big thing. And once you find one to two, it then really comes down to referrals, right? They'll know one to two people and you go down the spiral and you continue to expand your network through the people that you initially started off with. Mm, yeah, yeah, I like that because... I mean, that's something that inadvertently I started doing uh, a while back where, you know, I, I found myself when I first started this this sort of game, we'll call it a game, um, was buying into the idea that I needed to be on all the platforms all the time and and be like an influencer on all the platforms. And I think that's where people get stressed out and overwhelmed. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, was like, you know, just pick one platform and just try that first. And so, you know, we, we started putting content up through Facebook and, and that was doing okay. But I started to notice that I was getting a lot of engagement on Instagram. And so I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, I like this. I like Instagram because I'd used it for photos before and I understood it. It was something that I went on every day. So I was like, you know what? I'll use Instagram. And that's been, that's actually been a lot of fun. And it's engaged me to the point where I was like, I actually enjoy this, you know, whereas before I was so resistant. I was like, do I have to be on social media? Like, can't I just create some good content and people will just come find me and, you know, I'll get speaking gigs. And the answer was no. <laughs> and so, yeah. so choosing a platform that you are actually engaged with and that you want to show up to sounds like a really important piece. And then, you know, is it something that you scale from there? Like once you've sort of gotten the, you know, however many thousands of followers on one platform, do you start to shift to another one? Or what does that balance look like? Yeah, I think it's once you find that, like continue to, of course, focus in on riding the wave, because I think a lot of people kill their momentum because they start to go viral a few times and then they start branding themselves as an expert of the platform without ever getting deeper into it. So my favorite line that Elliot once told me was, oh, person goes viral on Twitter once, becomes Twitter expert in bio. And I'm like, that's so true. Like, I've seen so many people do that. But like, I think it's really, you know, once you feel comfortable that, hey, I can manage my time being able to do LinkedIn really well and effectively, is there a way I can maybe take out 15 to 20 minutes at the end of my day to go focus on Facebook or Instagram, right? And really go into it incrementally as opposed to starting off being like, I need to be everywhere at once. My audience is everywhere. They want to hear from me on Instagram and on Snapchat and on Twitter and on LinkedIn. As opposed to doing that, really, really try to like lead your followers and your community down a little funnel, which is, hey, I provided you value on LinkedIn. Now check me out on Instagram. After six months, I'm really, really focusing on LinkedIn. After you start posting good content on Instagram, maybe tell them to follow you on Twitter in an Instagram story, right? But a lot of people, I think, off the bat are just like, follow me on this, follow me on this, follow me on this. But there's no reason for people to do that unless you've truly been able to connect with them. And you're not going to be able to connect with them off one single post itself. You have to work at it to build that relationship. Because again, you're not going to be able to talk to all these people in person or even a message 
you're going to have to connect with them on a deeper level by coming up on their newsfeed again and again and again. Nice. Yeah. And and I think you've made some really, really great points there and, and given people a lot of sort of like food for thought on how to actually engage with people. So how I, I want to I switch gears and go back to the social entrepreneurship, because I think that, that, you know, that now that we have some insight on what it looks like for people to really engage on, on different platforms, I want to go back to the social entrepreneurship side of things. So first and foremost, how do you define social entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I define it very simply, which is conventional business will balance profit. And these days have started to balance the idea of consumer attention and being able to appear very altruistic. Social entrepreneurship in its most pure form will balance three key actors, people, planet and profit, which means there is an insistence on reaching a particular bottom line. But if it means that you can hit more people and impact more people in a positive way, that bottom line becomes rather irrelevant. And so there's two misconceptions with social ventures, in my opinion. One is that they don't make money. And that's a huge problem, especially when social ventures go to raise money from VCs. Is a lot of times the minute they brand themselves as a social venture, VCs are like, well, we're not going to make money on this idea. And it's not true. Social ventures can easily be really, really good cash machines. It just means that their focus their focus primarily is on a social impact on a community that would otherwise not be able to be met by a conventional business doing it through a monetary value as opposed to a social value. And the second big misconception for social ventures is by being a social venture, you have to have like you have to literally target like one of the big social issues like poverty or something like that. Like that's the first thought people have when you talk about social ventures. But like I've had people who literally created social ventures tailored for their community, like in Fort Mac, like Fort McMurray, northern Alberta for the American audience, by the way, (laughs) you know, northern Alberta and Fort McMurray when there was a terrible forest fire. I've sought nonprofits that sprung up just to fix that fire and to be able to provide money and resources to the families that had their homes turned down. So that could literally be a social venture in itself, which is it's more responsive as opposed and more predictive than being just a business that's trying to go after this big overarching goal like poverty. Mm, yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. And I think, you know, we're starting to see more and more co- uh, companies that are popping up that I define as profit for a purpose. So it's, it's really around the idea of it's not just about making money, but it's about making money that'll have an impact in some way, shape or form. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are struggling. I think I see, you know what I think it is? I see a lot of people that struggle with this concept because there is some sort of like reservation around doing good and making money while you're doing good. So how do you, how do you address that? Cause I think that that's a, that's a mentality thing. That's a belief thing. And how, how do you address that belief? Yeah. I mean, the big thing is I actually like to look at, you know, compare Bill Gates to Gary Vaynerchuk. Right. And I think that's a great example because when I was speaking to Gary about this, one of the things he told me is there's a way, and I think he said his life will be a testament to this, which is there is a way to build legacy in the form of saying, I built my wealth while helping people. While, you know, of course, Bill Gates never planned for it. He was so young. But the way he went about his journey was make an enormous amount of wealth and then give it away. And I think in the world we live in right now, there is easily, you know, both models, in my opinion, are correct. There's no one correct model, if you will, as long as you're providing an impact to other people and helping people out. That's great. But I think there is a very easy way these days to be able to grow your brand and grow your business and grow your wealth while giving back in the process of doing so. 
Mm. And do you see social entrepreneurship being something that is really engaging for for people of any generation? Or do you see that there's a certain subset of people? Because a lot of the social entrepreneurs that I've met um, are, are generally people that are in my generation or your generation and, and the future generations that are coming up. But I see a lot of people in older generations that still have that like traditional money-making machine. Like you build a money-making machine and that's it. That's the bottom line. So is, is that something that you've seen as well? And, and if so, why do you think that it's our generations that are starting to like really lean into the idea of social entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like, you know, I got to be careful qualifying the answer because I bet there are people who are older who also, you know, love the advent of social entrepreneurship, love the you know aspect of giving back and altruism. But at the same time, I just think the way that they did business and the way that they grew up in like a society where in business, like you were saying, was so cutthroat, like reach the bottom line, hit your targets as an employee and continue moving on. And it's all about numbers. I think these days it seems to be that our generation and you know the younger generations tend to be more apathetic, not apathetic, I'd say, sorry, empathetic. That's that's a weird play on words there. <laughs> um, no, it, it, they seem to be more empathetic, I think, to the world's issues and what's going on in the world today. And I think it's something that mainly has probably come through social media, which is these days we can hear about tragedies. Um, we can hear about terrible things happening around the world just through a click. And we're so basically plugged into the world and what's happening in it that it definitely does lead us to being more informed about social issues. And it makes it so that a lot more people are likely to take these social issues and feel like there's a way to fix them, even if I'm 6,000 miles away in a different country altogether. And so I do believe that the rise of social entrepreneurship and the rise of social media have definitely been in tangent with one another, but it's something that's probably been proportional at the same time. Mm. And do, do you feel like there's there's a certain value or merit to companies today who are starting to shift their model to have some form, uh, some form of a social mandate within the organization to attracting just like the correlation to having the social mandate within the corporation to attracting some of the top talent of the upcoming generations? Yeah, because it seems to be pretty important. It seems to be like really inherently important for our generations. Yeah. That's such a great question. I mean, this is going to be my only plug during the show. But yeah, like that's literally what I speak about at corporations, right? Like, you know, whenever I go to the Goldman's or the American Express or Google's or whatever, all I talk about is, guys, you guys have a marketing budget. You're trying to reach this younger generation instead of just being like, OK, the younger generation, they're on social media. Start to understand what they like the most. And normally, and I'm kidding you not, there are actually statistics to back this up. All of them are falling through my head right now. But the younger generation, on average, tends to follow at least three to five philanthropic pages on Instagram. Hmm. Just the feel-good pages, right? The videos that show some really terrible situation being resolved or a picture that shows a very, very powerful statement basically done by giving. And I think the big thing here is not to suggest that our generation is on social media and that's it, but our generation loves consuming content that makes us feel good. And one way to make us feel good is by showing good actions and good deeds, right? It's very simple that way. So I feel like, you know, one of the things I was talking to, I think two weeks ago, I was talking to the VP of marketing at, at Western Union, 
their most trending YouTube video was a campaign they did where they got 60 people, 60 influencers to go around the world and give these little cash boxes to people. And that video legitimately got the most views by probably double, I would say, double the amount of views on YouTube than any of their other videos. And then they're asking me questions like, hey, what should our marketing budget look like? Or where should we put our content towards? And for me, it's very clear, which is if you want to incorporate a social entrepreneurial model, it doesn't mean you have to go about the model that Tom Shoes, for example, has, which is every pair you buy, you donate one, which actually has been found to be pretty disruptive because it's literally torn down the entire domestic market for shoes in some of these developing nations. You don't have to go to that extreme. But what I would say is if you t- start to like really tie in your philanthropic initiative, bring them more as the focal point in your marketing budget, and at the same time, start to add more meat and more talent towards it and bring more of your tech into that, it can be really, really big. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting. There's a couple of things that that popped up there for me while while you were talking. Um, one of them was that the the idea that millennials and you know my generation and your generation, the ones to come, will actually be the first generation that will leave this earth with less than what their parents left with. And so there, you know, there's a lot of studies that are being done around this, but what they're finding is that that, you know, our generations are really looking for meaning over the accumulation of money. And so the more that we can, the more that we can start to tap into that, the more that, you know, the more we can find meaning within our work, the more that we can create products and services or marketing campaigns uh, or advertisements that are tuning into this idea of meaning and fulfillment, um, the money will follow that. And secondly, the the other thing that I wanted to talk about was in and around the idea that, you know, you were talking about this campaign that what, what, what was it? Western Union? Western Union. Yeah. yeah. So so it's really interesting because there's a bunch of research that uh, that was done about a decade ago that was trying to discover who benefits the most out of giving. So what they were studying was they had the giver receiver medium. And so somebody would give somebody else uh, a gift or a charitable donation or something along those lines. And they were trying to test and clarify who would actually benefit the most in that situation. Because you would think that the person receiving is going to get the most out of that situation because they're receiving something that they really need. But what they found was it wasn't the giver or the receiver who benefited the most from from a from a release of dopamine and serotonin for so like a, an actual neurological happiness release, but it was the person watching. It was the third person who was actually witnessing the the gift giving and the receiving in that situation that actually benefited the most. So it makes sense that we you know need to create these campaigns and these philanthropic components within our organizations that that are going to have a huge impact on on people everywhere. So if we can start to put our sort of corporate culture into these campaigns, it sounds like that's going to have a huge, huge impact on how people perceive our brand. Yeah, I love that. I really, really love that. And and I think you nailed it right there. Kyle. Like, damn, we should switch places right now. That was, <laughs> that was insane. That was fire. That was fire. Uh, thanks, man. Thank you. Well, um, I, I also want to ask you, you know, you, uh, it's, I've gotten to connect with Gary quite a few times, Gary Vaynerchuk in the, in the last year, because we you know, I had him at the Real Talk Summit and I got to hang out with him and interview him. And, um, you know, because I'm spending some time in New York, I've got to connect with him quite a bit. Um, but it sounds like you just started a, a new venture 
with one of Gary V's ex-employees and the new venture is called Dunk. And I'm curious about how this new venture came about. And first and foremost, my question is, did you poach Gary's, did you poach Gary's guy? Like what happened? There? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, basically, the venture came about in this way, which is Elliot Robinson, who's probably one of the smartest guys I know. He's my roommate. He's a really good friend of mine. I met him for the first time when I met Gary a, lot, a year and a half ago in August. Um, went to go speak to him at his office, and I saw that the only young person really working for him at that time, and by young, I mean like my age, like I was 18 years old, the only really like young person in the room was Elliot. And so we connected off the bat. He was hyping me up. He was the type of person who was like, oh, you're going to love it, like make the, most, make the most of it, you'll enjoy it, that type of thing. And after we stayed connected and just starting going like, you know, going back and forth, started FaceTiming each other regularly. And when I was moving up to New York to sell my company, I basically wanted to hit up somebody in the area who I knew I could trust on to help me out with networking and connecting with people. I asked Elliot and on the first night he invited me to that Hustle NY event I was telling you about earlier. He literally did so much to bring me into his circle, to connect me with as many people as possible. And within a month, he also moved in with me because we just had a great rep going on. We both live with each other and another person, actually, who's, you know, Gary's personal writer, Colin Campbell, who's awesome. So our house is literally a <laughs> Gary V fan club, if you will. But at the same time, like, you know, Elliot's been working on this idea Dunk for about three years now. He's grown dunk as a platform it's at dunk on instagram to 2.2 million followers and he's been buying accounts and in total he has a media network of over 10 million followers hyper focused on basketball and that's something we both love right we're very competitive we played 2k we had a thousand dollar basketball bet that we haven't really followed up with yet but we'll definitely play a one-on-one for a thousand dollars soon but at the same time we wanted to find a way to work with each other i was looking for another project And I was thinking of consulting for basketball teams and players. And when we both decided to go to Slam Magazine, which is a potential client, we gave our individual pitches and they came out to be the exact same thing, except Elliot's pitch was a bit better because he had 10 behind him and I had to use his follower base in order to be able to amplify Slam Magazine's content if they went with me. So what we decided is to bring those models together to start this company together because it wasn't really a company before. It was just a number of Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat pages. So really to come together, hire people, get office space. And Elliot was already thinking of really transitioning and moving into it full time. So the pieces just aligned. Gary's coming on board actually into the company as an advisor for it. So that's really cool also to be able to have him as an advisor and then later on potentially an investor. So that's really what I'm working on right now is taking this from just being a media network of over 10 million followers to taking it and really starting to do a lot of brand promotions and starting to do a lot of consulting. And so we've been talking to a number of people from Nike basketball to EA sports to big baller brand. We had a meeting with the Golden State Warriors last week. So it's just been crazy having to start literally a media company from scratch and doing everything in such a quick period of time, but having a proven track record and proven business model. Because in the last three years, Elliot's made about $300,000 just by doing individual brand promotions off his accounts. Wow. That's amazing, man. I mean, it blows my mind how some people can use uh, social media influencing. And, you know, I think the cool thing about it is that it's, it's leveraging a model of marketing that is actually been around forever, which is word of mouth. And, you know, what do you trust more? Do you trust more when you watch a commercial on your, you know, on TV that, you know, a brand is paid for, or do you trust somebody 
who you personally follow, who you've built this sort of like, you know, not in-person rapport with, but you've built a rapport because you feel like you know them, you know, and, and you, you know, their personality, you know, their beliefs because you've heard them talk. And so when they, when they recommend a product or a service, we're much more likely to be influenced by that. And so there is a huge amount of untapped potential in influencer marketing. And so it's really cool to hear what you guys are doing in the space of, of basketball and what you're doing with Dunk. So that is incredible. Listen, Swish, this has been, this has been a blast. I feel like I could jam with you for hours on some of these, on some <laughs> of these topics. And so, you know, maybe we'll have to have you back because we didn't even dive into some of the stuff that you've done, you know, like being a, a youth ambassador for the United Nations and some of the other things that I really have a lot of respect for you about. So, um, so maybe we'll have you back on next year. Maybe we'll do like a live video interview, uh, which would, which would really be great and, uh, put it out to our communities. But if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Yeah, um, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> I think we've been talking about that a lot. So Manu Swishkaswami, M-A-N-U, and then Swish, just like the basketball shot, and then go Swami, G-O-S-W-A-M-I. And you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at go Swish, G-O-S-W-I-S-H. Um, quick note from me, Connor, really appreciate you again for having me on. I think the community that you built with Mantox, just, it's incredible. And I cannot wait to meet you in person at Generation Now. And also to hear you speak, man, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, for all the listeners that are out there, uh, both Swish and myself are speaking February 28th in Toronto. I Thanks for bringing that up. It's at Generation Now. We'll put the link in the bio below if you want to grab tickets to check it out. It's going to be an incredible event. Gary Vaynerchuk speaking there. Um, he'll, he'll be closing out the night after us. And it's going to be some incredible conversations, some really, really great speakers. So definitely check that out. Swish, thank you so, so, so much uh, for, for connecting. I hope to see you soon. And uh, for everybody else out there listening, uh, please head on over to iTunes. Don't forget to leave us a uh, review. Subscribe. Uh, head on over to mantalks.com for all the latest blog posts, some other podcasts, the midweek mini episodes. Feel free to email me info at mantalks.com. I would love to hear your questions or recommendations for guests. Uh, maybe that's even you. And uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.